east is from the west. It says he has put our sins behind his back where he cannot see them. It says that he has cast them into the depths of the ocean. It says that he does not remember them anymore. It doesn't mean he forgets. God can't possibly forget anything, but he chooses not to remember. Our sins have been forgiven. And brothers, as we contemplate what that means for us, that will fire in us real love for God. Exactly like this story about the woman. He who has been forgiven much loves much. When we think about what we have been spared, our sins deserve the wrath of God. We deserve hell. In Revelation, hell is described as a lake of fire, a fire that does not go out. It's a fearsome thing to contemplate conscious, eternal torment for sin. And we've been spared all that. We've been given what we don't deserve. We've been not given what we do deserve. And so our sins have been forgiven. I think our love can be weak as well because sometimes our love is fickle. We, we need this command because our love is fickle. Our affections are quickly drawn away. Listen, as men, you know as well as I do, your desires, your affections can quickly be drawn to other things. And that might be material goods, toys. You want a new truck or a new Xbox or whatever it is. Maybe it's a desire for a relationship. If you're a young man, you're desired to be married. Or maybe if you're married, you wish your relationship was different. There was something you wish you... You want the way she would be or the things she would do differently. Maybe it is for reputation and prestige. Maybe it's a, uh, you want to succeed at work in the way another person does. It's a temptation to envy. Uh, maybe it's financial success or security. Maybe it's investments. You, you just wish you had that peace of mind that comes from not having to worry about making it to the end of the month. Jeremiah 2.13 says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and shoot out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. A cistern is like a well in the ground, but instead of having water in it already, it's where you catch rainwater that comes down. It's why these cisterns would often get muddy, they'd get dirty, the sides would start to collapse in on them. Say, look, you guys are like people who just dug dirty cisterns. You keep running to this cistern instead of the, the cool, refreshing water that God gives. And we all know that temptation. There's something in mind for you. And speaking of, of water, I think another way to think about this is that our love is sometimes not expressed in faithful obedience. Sometimes our love is not expressed. We need this command because our love is not expressed in faithful, faithful obedience. And John gets to this in the book of Revelation. Well, actually, Jesus says this. These are red letters in Revelation. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, this is a, this is a really important verse at the beginning of Revelation. Remember how Revelation was written to seven different churches. Chapters two and three is like a cover letter to each of the churches, an introduction to everything that's about to follow. Does anybody know off the top of your head which church this is addressed to? Laodicea. Laodicea. That's good. Yeah, Laodicea. And a lot of people read this and they think, hmm, being lukewarm is, is, is not good. Don't be a lukewarm Christian. Either be hot and on fire for Jesus or just be cold and go the other direction. And that's not what it means. 
That's not what, that, that's, that's a common misconception. I thought that for a long time. And I was reading up on it a while back and discovered that this has a very different meaning. Laodicea was on the bank of the Lycus River. The Lycus River is a slow-moving, muddy river. It's dirty. Because it's slow-moving, it's warm. The sun just bakes it. And the water's good for nothing. You can't drink it. You know, it's, it's not good at all. Um, but Laodicea was near two other cities. Six miles to the north of Laodicea was a city called Hierapolis. Hierapolis was famous for these hot springs that were known to have healing capabilities. So, hot, be hot. Have a healing influence on others. Bring restoration to others. Ten miles south of Laodicea was Colossae. Colossae had springs that were known for being cool and refreshing and sitting as Colossae did right on the Roman road that cut through that part of what we now call Turkey. It was a, a common place for travelers to stop and be refreshed by these cooling waters. And so Jesus is saying, and, and, and John is passing on to us here, that we're called to, to good works, either healing and restorative works, or how can we be a refreshment to others? Don't be lukewarm. Don't be, don't be like this slow-moving, warm, muddy river that flows through, that flows through Laodicea. So we need this command. We need this command because sometimes our love is not expressed in faithful obedience. So now I want to talk about how we obey this command. We need this. We need this because we drift, we wander, we forget. Our love grows cold. We need it to be fanned into flame. So how do we do this? All right, I am a... I'm a principal of a school, a headmaster of a small classical school. So basically, it means that I can't let this weekend go by without some reference to Greek mythology. So I want to tell you two stories that I'll think, I think will illustrate how this works. Um, I didn't come up with this on my own. I first read this in a book by a guy named Sam Storms called One Thing. And he tells the, the stories. He wants to help us see what it means for men, for men like us, to live passionately for God, And he wants to illustrate it in Greek mythology through the stories of Odysseus and Jason. Two different stories, but some similarities. So first, Odysseus. Odysseus, you probably know the story. Um, he goes off to fight in the Trojan War, and uh, that's first described in Homer's Iliad. And then they finally win the war, and his journey home is in the Odyssey. And so the Odyssey is this long, epic poem about all of Odysseus's troubles in getting home. And one of his troubles is he and his men, they're in their ship, and they have to sail past an island that is the home of the famous or the infamous sirens. And on the banks of this island are these strange creatures that are kind of like mermaids. They're beautiful, and they sing this amazing, enticing song that often lures sailors, so beautiful that it lures sailors out of the boat. Sailors will hear this song, jump out of the boat, swim to where the sirens are, and then it turns out the sirens are basically cannibals and eat them. It's not, not a good outcome. So the song is beautiful, but everybody knows if you hear the song, you're going to die. So don't get near enough to hear the song, but they have to go past. And Odysseus is thinking about it. He says, you know, I've heard this song. is amazing. I want to hear the song. I really want to hear the song. She's like, all right, fellas, I got a plan. Here's what we're going to do. 
we got this beeswax down below in the hole. We're going to put beeswax in y'all's ears. You're not going to be able to hear the song. I want to hear the song, so I'm going to have you strap me to the mast. You're going to tie me up tight. And then you are just going to row for all you're worth. And we're going to go straight past this. I'm going to hear the song, but I'll be tied to the mast, so I won't get out of the boat. You guys, beeswax in the ears. Keep rowing. I'll let you know how it sounds when we come out the other side. <laughs> so they start rowing. They tie them to the mast. They get to row and beeswax in the ears, all that. And they come within earshot, and he hears the siren song. It's the most beautiful song he's ever heard. Melodies and harmonies, and it takes him places he can't even imagine. He wants to jump out of the boat. He's ready to throw himself out of the boat. He is tied to the mast. He's straining against the ropes, foaming at the mouth. Let me loose. Boys, cut me loose. And they can't hear him. They're just rowing. He's like, man, he's, whoo. So they keep rowing. They finally get out of earshot. He's exhausted. He's slumped. He's wasted. They take the beeswax out there on time. Odysseus, what was it like? Fellas, it's the most beautiful song I ever heard. If I hadn't been tied to that mask, I would have dove right in, in a heartbeat. I just wanted it so bad. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life. So, that's one way to do it. Now, there's another story from ancient Greece. Jason and the Argonauts, they're on this quest to find this golden fleece, right? Turns out they have to go by the same island. And uh, along the way, they're getting close. They see it's coming, and they're like, hey, uh, what do you think we should do about this island? They got sirens. It's dangerous. It's not good. I don't think we should hear that. Jason says, yeah, but we have a secret weapon. They have a guy with them named Orpheus. And Orpheus is the most talented musician in all of ancient Greek history. He has a lyre, kind of like a guitar, I guess. And he can make melodies better than any other, even better than the sirens. And so as they start getting close and they start hearing faint sounds of the siren's song on the wind, Orpheus, light it up for us, brother. Play us a tune. And he starts playing. And as they row, they can hear the siren song from a distance, but they hear Orpheus' song right there with them in the boat. And his song is so sweet to their ears, so desirable. They're not even tempted to jump out of the boat. And they make it through the other side and everyone has survived. And the point of that story is those are two different ways to live the Christian life. So many Christians go through life thinking, I want what's out there in the world. It's enticing to me. Money, fame, sex, power, leisure, rest, whatever it is. Everything out there. Oh, that song is so good. I really want it. But I know if I get out of the boat, I know I'll die. We've read our Bibles and we thought, no, the world is bad. Don't do that. It'll tear you to pieces. I can't do that. So I will just stay strapped in the boat. Oh, don't ah, don't get out of the boat. Don't look at this. Don't listen to that. Don't drink that. Don't do that. Nope, strap. Can't do it. And that is not the way the Lord wants us to live. We have Jesus in the boat with us. And the way we're meant to live is to see Jesus, to hear the song of the gospel every day. And to recognize that is the most beautiful, most desirable thing in the world. That if we have Christ, we can do without the siren song of the world. We can sail right past that island with no temptation to jump out of the boat. That is what it means to love God. How do we love God? To know and to savor Jesus Christ. Now, this is, this is sometimes difficult to talk about with men. Because women are really good at this. And men were like, what, what do you mean? How do, I, how do I do this? How do I have a, 
a, a relationship with God like this? How do I know and love and follow Jesus Christ? Uh, I've heard people sometimes talk about, uh, hey, you know, there's these, these worship songs people sing. They're like prom songs to Jesus. Like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to get into some kind of sappy, weird, like, relationship. What are we, would you, what are we talking about here? What does this actually mean? So what does it mean to love him? Well, it means, it means first to know him, to recognize what he has done for us, and to express our gratitude and our affection for him in tangible ways, through our worship, through our obedience. So there are a lot of different ways this can work out. I would just start really simply. I think in a group this size, I don't know you guys all, but I, I, I would imagine that some of us need to just return to basics on this. How do you love God? Number one, spend time with him. How do you love anyone? How do you know anyone? You spend time with that person. You talk. There is a healthy give and take. I've had lots of conversations with you guys this weekend already. Hey, tell me about it. Where are you from? What do you like to do? What kind of work do you do? How long have you been coming to the church? And you guys have asked me questions. Where am I from? What do I do? Tell me about your family. We have talked. There's that healthy exchange. And we do that with the Lord. Very simply. We talk to God through prayer. And he talks to us through his word. Some people call that a quiet time or devotions or any number of things. You can do this casually throughout the day. You don't have to be formally sitting, you know, in your favorite chair with your Bible over your cup of coffee every morning to do this. You can do it throughout the day. But it's not for nothing that for a long time, basically since the Reformation, Christians have sought out time in their day to spend with the Lord, to know him personally. If you eat every day, you feed your body. I eat every day. You can probably tell by looking at me. I eat every day. If you read your Bible every day, you feed your soul. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so we need, we need God's word. It is bread to our souls. It will feed us. Now, some of you maybe are not in the habit of having a regular, whatever you want to call it, quiet time, devotion, Bible reading. Maybe you don't, I like meeting with God. I, you can call that anything you want. It doesn't matter to me. But I try to meet with God every day because I, I like to think about the personal aspect of this as I would a meeting with a person. I try to do this every day. Talk, I talk to God through prayer. He talks to me through his word. If you're not in the habit of doing this regularly, I have a very simple challenge for you. I have a simple challenge I want to encourage you to take up called the 555 plan. I didn't make this up either. Somebody passed this on to me. Give me five minutes a day, five days a week for the next five weeks. Very simple way to get started. You can read one chapter of your Bible in five minutes. I guarantee it. Almost any chapter. One or two of them that are kind of long. Like Psalm 119, maybe not. But most of them you can. So five minutes a day. Take five minutes. If you are not in the habit, devote five minutes. The amount of time it takes for your coffee to warm up, you can do this. Five minutes a day. Do it five days a week. Let's be realistic. You're going to miss a day or two. Just commit to five days a week and do it for the next five weeks because that's about how long it takes to form a habit. Keep track of it. See how you do. When you get to the end of that five weeks, I, guess what? I got a 5-5-5 I got a five, five, five plan for you. Add five minutes a day, five days a week for the next five weeks. You can do about 10, day, 10, 10 minutes a day. You can see where we're going with this. You're building a habit. 
Now, you don't have to do that for long before you're like, you know, I missed my time with the Lord this morning, and I really missed it, and I want to get back to it. Now, some of you, maybe you're, you're doing this consistently, but you're kind of sporadic. Maybe you just kind of open the Bible, and you're like, I don't know what I'm going to read today, and I open it up. Um, I had a friend who used to call that lucky dipping. You know, you just open the Bible, see what you get today, and uh, some days you're like, ooh, Leviticus. Yeah, maybe not. And you go, lucky dipping's not a great idea. Yeah, um, probably heard of what happened to the one guy. He tried this and opens up. Judas went and hung himself. Hmm. Okay, that's not for today. Turns over a few pages. Go and do likewise. What? You know. So you got to be real careful. With lucky dipping. So maybe for you, maybe for you, a plan would be to read through the Bible in a year. Okay, it's great to start this on January first, but you know you can start on April first. <laughs> Look at that. Um, read through the Bible in a year. Plans are easy to find. Um, I used one by uh, an old Puritan, a Scottish Puritan named Robert Murray McChain. Take you through, you read four chapters a day. Well, it has four, it, there's this four columns. And so it lists the, it lists scriptures for, to read, chapters to read each day. It's, it puts them in four columns. If you read the first three columns, you read through the entire Bible in a year. If you read through the fourth column, you add another lap through Psalms of the New Testament. Pretty mad, four chapters. So you read through the entire Bible in a year. I have done that every year since 1999. Still works. This is my 25th year reading through the Bible. And what that has done for me has given me a sense of the entire story of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, how it all hangs together. It's given me exposure to parts of the Bible I would probably never have read before. I wouldn't be that interested in, I don't know, Obadiah or some of the other minor prophets. But... It's like, well, I got to keep reading, and I'm going to keep reading. And it's, it has served my soul in unexpected ways. So many times to see the quiet providence of God, that just reading through Deuteronomy, and there's a verse that, like, you know what? I, I see something here that the Lord has for me today. I see the quiet providence of God in that. Now, this is not for everybody, though. Others I know have, uh, have tried to read through the Bible in a year program, and they think, yeah, you know, I just don't like jumping from, from, from chapter to chapter and story to story. So maybe for you, maybe for you, the, the way to take up this challenge and to, to hear from God every day is to go deep on one particular book. Maybe you need to take a book and learn it, learn it inside and out. Read it slowly and get a commentary and read through. And, and how much can I learn about this book? Understand the background of the book, memorize an outline to the book. Maybe a really good place to start that would be very manageable is the book of Philippians. It's four chapters, probably the happiest book in the New Testament. It's a, it's a delight. And you will see Jesus clearer than ever if you read the book of Philippians. And if you're not sure what to do, ask Matt. He's your pastor. He knows you. He loves you. He will help you find it. So we love the Lord your God. We do that as we spend time with him, as we, as we relate to him, as we know him. So we pray, we make our requests known to him. We also, so love God and love your neighbor. How do we love others? Love others. A couple ways we can do this. First, laying down your life. Quoted some, some verses earlier about the importance of sacrificing ourselves. To sacrifice our own comfort for the good of others is a way to be like Christ in our love for others. So for married men, we can ask the question, we leave today, we can ask the question, how can I lay down my life for my wife today? Uh, I know exactly what's going to happen for me after this. Well, 
I won't get home today. But if I were close enough to get home from an event like this, what I would be thinking is I want to go home, I want to unpack, I want to get a hot shower, some dinner, maybe a nap, maybe kick back, watch a game or a movie or something. That sounds great. And I know what my wife wants to do. She wants to hear about it. She wants to talk. And okay, um, I'm kind of tired. But now, how can I lay down my life for my wife? I know my wife, she wants to, how did God meet you? Tell me about the guys you met. Uh, how's the Lord work in their life? What did God show you? Which sermon was uh, the most significant for you? What changes do you think God wants you to make? What do I need to learn from what you learned? And that's hard work to think through when my brain is tired from not enough sleep and, and all the talking we've done. And that's a simple way. And that's just one thing that I can do today. There will be something tomorrow. There'll be something the day after that. Something the day after that. And so to love your neighbor as yourself, how can I lay down my life? There's the definition I gave you earlier. The, the glad acceptance of sacrificial responsibility. How can I gladly accept sacrificial responsibility? I think the one thing that I want to highlight here, I think that maybe the maybe one of the most important, because we could go through lots of we go through lots of different ways that that we could love others, love your neighbor as yourself, right? We talk about serving in the church. You guys are doing that, seeing all kinds of stuff like that. We could talk about evangelism. I know that's a real commitment here, and I love Matt's example in that. He's led you into that. We talk about things like that. I'm sure that after this little Taylor baby is born, there's going to be people taking meals over. You know, you guys are making that possible. Even if it's your wife that's making the food, you're funding it. It's well done, man. You're laying down your life for others. But I think as men, I, I don't think we can spend this much time together without addressing how do we, one of the most important ways to love others, love your neighbors yourself, is through purity. We love others through our own commitment to sexual purity. We love our wives, men who are married. We love our children, our grandchildren, our churches through our sexual purity. Young men who aren't yet married, you love your future wife. You can start loving her now through your commitment to sexual purity. We love those who are in the world by refusing pornography. We dial down the demand just that little bit, that little bit. And if there were not demand, there would not be supply. If there were not supply, then there would not be those women, somebody's daughter or sister being defiled through pornography. So I think it might help us to think about 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20 as a way to apply this commitment to love others through purity. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20 says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. These three verses are worth memorizing. Once you've got 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13 and 14 down, we're going to move on to 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. The situation here is Paul is correcting some of the Corinthians for visiting prostitutes. These Corinthians thought, man, this grace stuff is fantastic. We can be forgiven for sin. So I guess that means we can keep sinning. Prostitutes, well, okay, let's go. And this isn't just about prostitution. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20 can be applied in any form of sexual immorality because Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 that if a man looks at a woman 
with lustful intent in his heart, then that to him is sin. He has already committed adultery. All that stands between him and sin is the opportunity. To look with lustful intent means, if I could get away with it, I would. It scares me. It scares me to know that that's in my heart. So immorality, the sexual immorality that's in view in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20 is about actions. It's about words. It's about thoughts. It's about motives. Examples here could range from things very overt, like, like prostitutes, to sexually explicit videos or other pornography, masturbation, erotic chat rooms, romance novels. But it could also include actions and intentions that are much more subtle, Flirting, sexual fantasies that are deep in the recesses of our own hearts, savoring the attentions of a member of the opposite sex. The Lord sees. Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Find that one of the most sobering verses in the Bible. To know that there's no such thing as a private moment. Even in my mind and in my heart. So we learned a couple of things from 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. We learned that all sin is serious. All sin is serious. Some of those people, you know, want to think about, yeah, does God care more about some sins than others? And a, and a quick answer to that is, well, no, all sin is dangerous. All sin is serious. But this verse tells us, no, there is one kind of sin that is more dangerous and more serious than others. God takes this more seriously than others. Look at what? Every other sin, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Why is this so serious? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? God has given us these bodies to be a temple. The Holy Spirit has moved in. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your heart and to to involve your body, your eyes, your heart, your mind, or any other part of your body in sexual immorality is to drag the Holy Spirit into that. It is to defile the temple of the Spirit. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Paul also says, not only this, you are not your own. This body, these eyes, this mind is not our own to do with as we please. You were bought with a price. You belong to Jesus. We are slaves of Christ. We belong to him. John Piper recommends, look, if you are tempted to sin through images, most men are. If you're tempted to sin through images, what you need is another image. You need another image. And he recommends, think about the price. Think about the price that Jesus paid to purchase you as his own. Picture that man being tied at the wrists and stretched across a low rock and then flogged with a whip till his back was a bloody mess, shreds of skin, muscle hanging out, blood everywhere. Now picture him with a crown of thorns. These thorns, the area of Jerusalem would grow sometimes be two to three inches long. These are not those little short prickers on a, on a rose bush. These are spikes being hammered into his head you know, how, you know how badly head wounds hurt and how much head wounds bleed? And then the indignity, the mockery, being 
you know, a royal garment, a purple robe thrown across his back and these coarse Roman soldiers mocking him, spitting on him, slapping him around, just having their way with him as sport. Forced to walk now, weakened, bloody, forced to walk outside the city itself, that itself, march of shame. He's too weak to carry his own cross. This other guy, Simon, has to carry it. They get out there, and then, of course, he is gruesomely nailed to a cross. Some crucifixions, they did actually just tie people up and leave them. And that was enough. But they didn't. In Jesus' case, they nailed them. They wouldn't actually nail them through the hands. You probably know this, because that's just cartilage. It's too, it would just rip out, and that sounds terrible. But if you nail right here, there's uh, the bones catch, and it can support the weight of a man. Problem is, there's a major artery that runs through there, and the nerve bundle that handles all the sensitivity of your fingertips goes right through there. Excruciating pain. So as Jesus hung there, his full weight now being pulled upward, slowly suffocating, his lungs begin to fill with fluid. He's bleeding profusely. People are spinning as hot as flies. It's just unthinkable agony. And that's just the physical suffering, which itself was nothing compared to bearing the wrath of God. The fury of God against sin was directed at the one person who did not deserve it. Jesus, who had for all eternity known perfect fellowship with the Father, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The loving gaze of the Father was turned away and Jesus was alone to bear the wrath of God. So intense was that suffering that there were physical consequences. It says the, the sky grew dark for three hours. We need this picture in our minds. This will help us to fight pornography. If you are enticed to look at pornography, look at Jesus. John Piper has good advice. This is what it cost. Is this worth it? A few minutes here. It's three hours of agony, suffering for every sin that we've committed. Every glance with lustful intent deserves that kind of punishment. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, I think here it's easy. It's easy for us with a bunch of dudes around, broad daylight, computers not in front of us. It's easy to be resolved to this and say, yeah, that's right. I want to do that. But many of you know, if you are involved in some kind of sexual immorality, if you are indulging in pornography, addicted in some way to, to immorality, this can be very hard to break free from and you need some practical steps on what to do next. First, talk to God. Begin by talking to God. Confess your sin to God. Confess your sin to God. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. And it may not seem like we want justice in that moment. We've sinned and our, our sin deserves punishment. But God is faithful and just. And he puts our sins on Jesus and gives us Jesus' righteousness. It says that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even the sins that we didn't know to confess, he cleanses us of that unrighteousness. Then receive the forgiveness of Christ 
and walk in the freedom that he has secured for you. Galatians 5, is for freedom you have been set free. You need to know this is not what Jesus intended for you. Pornography is bondage. It is slavery. You've been made a slave to Christ. Jesus wants you back. He wants you to walk in this freedom. It's a theologian named William Barclay. He's commentating on this verse. He says, the great fact of the Christian faith is not that it makes a man free to sin, but that it makes him free not to sin. Brothers, it is for freedom that you've been set free. Jesus died so that you would not have to walk in bondage to pornography. So talk to God, confess your sins, and receive forgiveness. This is what repentance means. A lot of times we think repentance means turning away from sin. That's right. That's part of it. Repentance does mean turning away from sin. And we think, oh, okay, so if it's turning away from sin, it must mean turning to right action, obedience. No, that's not what repentance means. Repentance means turning away from sin and turning to Jesus. Come to Christ. If you turn away from sin and just try to start doing virtuous behavior, godless, you're not going to have the strength to do that on your own. You won't persist in that. You won't make it. No, turn away from sin and come to Jesus and ask him for the help by his spirit to now walk in repentance. It will lead to obedience. It will lead to righteousness, but we, it has to go through Christ. So we talk to Christ, talk to God, come to him for forgiveness. Next, talk to someone else. Talk to a mature brother, a believer, another man, and ask for help. Be honest. Uh, listen, I need, to, I need to tell you what I've been doing. When I was in college, I was about, I think I was about 19, and I was in slavery to pornography. It owned me. And I was terrified of telling my dad. I thought, I don't know, he's going to kick me out of the house. He's going to, I, I just can't imagine what, what is dad going to do. I was scared to death. But I gained enough conviction that I knew I had to do it. I went and my dad, I was, I was shocked. My dad said, thank you for telling me. It's not why I bought you that computer to do that with it. But I want to help you. Let's talk about what it means to follow Christ here. My dad was so gracious, understanding. It it never occurred to me before that, oh, maybe dad knew something of this temptation, knew how to fight it, knew how to overcome it. Sure, of course, my my dad is a believer. He loves the Lord. He's not going to come down on me in some self-righteous way. And I say that to say that if you are hesitant to confess this sin out of fear of what others will think, don't be. Every man in this room, every man in your church, every man in your life knows what it is to be tempted to lust. And so you can confess without fear that dad or this brother or your pastor is going to be self-righteous or indignant. How could you? No, that's not going to happen here. No. We need that help. And then know accountability is something you do to yourself. Many, especially young men, many men go astray and say, hey, I need some, some accountability. Could you hold me accountable? And then they expect that other guy to, uh, what, you want me to call you at 6 a.m. tomorrow and maybe 7 a.m. too? Maybe, how about 8 a.m.? Maybe again at 9? What, at 10? Like, how many times do I need to call you a day to make sure that you're doing okay? No, accountability is something we do to ourselves. So it's a way of being vulnerable. It's like, I need your help. When I encounter temptation, I'm going to text you. Here's what I need you to do. Could you text me a verse back? Could you send me something that would strengthen me for this fight? But I will come to you for help. That's what accountability is. Accountability is something we do to ourselves. (coughs) And then 
whoever that is, that, that your dad or your pastor, your small group leader, your, your brother in Christ is like, hey, I'm available. Yeah, you let me know what you need. When it's tempting, I'm here for you. And I'm going to check in from time to time, but I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have radar for this. I don't know when you're going to be tempted. So you tell me how I can help. Uh, I would recommend reading Joe Rigney's book, More Than a Battle. More Than a Battle. Joe Rigney, about a year ago, wrote a book. There's a number of books on breaking free from lust and pornography that are really good. I really like More Than a Battle. There's a chapter in here that is very sobering about how pornography rewires the brain. How pornography uses the chemistry of your brain against you. It is terrifying. But the good news is, if the brain can be wired to crave pornography, it can be rewired to flee. And it's a very hope-giving, gospel-centered book. It's a powerful incentive to continue in the fight. I also just want to encourage you to recognize that porn cannot satisfy. It will not satisfy. Pornography is cotton candy. You ever had cotton candy? Stuff is sticky. It's sweet. It looks good. That first bite is delicious. And then the stuff just evaporates in your mouth. Have you ever actually swallowed cotton candy? No, you haven't. It's just sugar and air. And it's gone. As soon as you put it in your mouth, the stuff is gone. All you're left with is a blue tongue. It does not satisfy. It will not fill you up. Imagine the difference between eating cotton candy and eating a steak. The Lord wants you to eat steak. And that is the God-given gift of sex within marriage. And if you're not married right now, then you don't get steak yet. And that's the way the Lord made it. That day, Lord willing, will come. And he wants you to wait for it. And it'll be worth waiting for. I promise. And in the meantime, don't eat cotton candy. Because it will not satisfy you. Some of you have read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, right? The screw tape letters, remember this? Screw tape is a senior tempter. He's, in, he's a little demon in uh, the devil's army, and he's writing letters to his nephew Wormwood. And so you have to continually be inverting things because he's, he's telling you how, how do you assault Christians? How do you draw them away from God and the kingdom? How do you tempt them to sin? And so he says things like, our father below, right? And he says, he says, what you want him to do, he, he refers to the Christian as the patient. He says, what you want to do with the patient is you want, to, you want to get him fixated on some aspect of pleasure that he feels like he can't do without. And then he says this, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. That's what pornography is. An ever-increasing craving for more. I just want more. I want to see more. For an ever-diminishing pleasure. What God wants to do is give you steak. Within marriage, within marriage, the God-given gift of sex is an ever-increasing craving for an ever-increasing pleasure. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the steak. So don't fall for the cotton candy. And then as you do this, as you walk in accountability, as you make yourself accountable to others, as you talk to God, as you confess your sins, as you read good books, create the boundaries that you need. You need actual physical boundaries for this. That might mean changing the settings on your phone. That might mean giving your phone to your dad or your pastor or your small group leader and saying, look, could you get rid of these apps? Could you shut down, turn off uh, music videos on iTunes or whatever else it is? Could you, do, could you do whatever needs to be done to protect me? Something straightforward. Maybe you need to, maybe it's the phone. You know what? Just turn off the browser. You know what? Maybe I just get rid of the phone and get a whole flip phone. I've known guys that have done that. That's how serious this is. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to stumble, cut it out. Better to go to heaven, one eye, 
go to hell with both. Better to go to heaven without an iPhone than not make it. Thomas Watson was a Puritan. He wrote a book called A Godly Man's Picture. I highly, highly recommend it. He said, a godly man will not go as far as he may, lest he go further than he should. And so think about a cliff. If sin is a cliff, I love what Thomas Watson is saying. He's saying, you don't toe the edge of the line. You don't say, oh, I can, I can go browse for movies on this website, or I can go look at, look at these images of sports and videos and stuff. I, I can go right up to that line. I'm just, no, I'm just not going to go over. It's a cliff. You're going to fall. So a godly man does, will not go as far as he may, lest he go further than he should. We could do a whole men's retreat on the topic of purity and godliness. And how to fight. And brothers, we must fight. This is where the battle is. The battle for your soul is the battle for sexual purity. I could say it the other way. The battle for sexual purity is the battle for your soul. The devil wants you. Peter says that the devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. What's the bait? Pornography and lust. He wants your soul. So brothers, we need to fight and we need to fight together. If you're not regularly having an honest conversation with another brother about this, you are in danger. So I want to encourage you to this. I want to leave, as we come out of this part, I want to leave you with 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. That is a godly ambition. Whether I'm at home or away, whatever I'm doing, I am making it my aim to please him. If we do that, we are serving the Lord. So be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. How do we let all that we do be done in love? We love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourself. One last quote, David Pryor wrote a commentary on 1 Corinthians. He said, such growth is always close to Paul's heart and his instructions to the Corinthians in verses 13 and 14 summarize the responsibility of every Christian. Be watchful, stand firm, be courageous, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. In the course of this letter, he has pinpointed many areas of discipleship where they have either fallen asleep or started to totter or lost their nerve. He has challenged them to take firm action to put right what has gone wrong. And above all, he has stressed the absolute priority of love, the absolute priority of love for everything they do as a church. These words stand, therefore, as the nub of Paul's instructions. They articulate accurately what lay close to Paul's heart. There you have it. Five commands. There's something in these five commands for everybody. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that as we finish this time together, Lord, as we've considered how to be watchful, how to stand firm in the faith, how to act like men, how to be strong, and how to let all that we do be done in love, I pray that for every man we would walk away with at least one thing, one specific step, one area for growth, something you want us to do. Help us to recognize what it is you want us to do that would please you. It would help us to grow to love you more. It would help us to grow to know you more accurately. Oh, Father, we want to be men that are like David, who are after your own heart. We want to be men like Paul, who are willing to sacrifice even our own lives as necessary for the gospel. We want to be men like John, who have a superior vision of Jesus and recognize who he is and what he's like. 
Lord, help us to be godly men. And I pray that you would help these men to help the other men, help each other. Lord, may they walk together side by side as men together, bearing one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ. May they encourage one another, pray for one another, strengthen one another. Oh, we need each other's help in this. So Father, would you bless and seal all that we have talked about this weekend and make it fruitful in our lives for weeks, months, even years to come. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus, whom we love with all our hearts. Amen.